Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Everything I see is you, and I don't want no substitute. Baby, I swear it's deja vu. Baby, I swear it's deja vu. <laughs> Troy, let me tell you something right now. The whole time you were p- pitching this idea to me, I'm like, <laughs> I was like, what the fuck song is Troy trying to tell me? But that's it. Swear it's deja vu. Okay, now I'm good. Now I'm on. The whole time, I had no fucking idea what you were talking about. I was just like, okay, okay, he is very into the idea, and now I'm into it too. Good call, Troy. So good old Beyonce <laughs> to start out this episode, because Roger, we are having fucking major deja vu with this episode. Ooh, and it's gay too, just like Beyonce thanking the queers for her recent <laughs> her recent Grammy win. Thanking the queer community. And we thank you, Beyonce. We thank you for deja vu. And uh, we thank this movie for being something else that I think is rather much a homage to the queer community, just like that recent album she released, I think this film is very much a tribute to the queer community. And I think we just get right to it because I'm super excited that we get to do this because I have been telling you I've wanted to do this like for the last two years. I'm not exaggerating. When I go back and I listen to some of her older episodes, this is one. I love this film and I was just not happy with the episode that we originally recorded, but that's to be um, expected because it was our very first Dark Night of the Podcast episode, and we 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 came in swinging because we wanted to do something gay themed as being two queer men ourselves, so we chose this film. But I don't think we did it justice just because we weren't in our groove. It was our first time doing it. We were both kind of nervous, kind of feeling our footing, getting used to each other. So it did definitely did not get the justice it deserved. So this, guys, is our very first Dark Night of the Podcast Redux episode. And it actually was voted on by you listeners in our Dark Night of the Podcast face group, Facebook group. If you're not part of that group, you should search it and join because we do all kinds of fun stuff. But this one And I was super excited because here we are revisiting it. And of course, we're talking about the 2004 gay-themed slasher, Hellbent. When we initially selected this title, it really was coming from, you're right, a place of just passion for the movie in general. As two queer horror film directors, Like this is kind of, I think, uh, in a way, it set the blueprint for what we strive for in so many ways. And this movie was hugely hugely influential on both of us. And I really almost feel like I haven't been giving it enough credit in acknowledging that. I feel like this film basically told me, a gay horror fan, you can do this. Like, you can go out and make a movie about people like you. You can go out and make a film that will resonate with people like you, that draw in an audience of diehard horror queer film fans who 
are hungry for this kind of material. And this movie really is to thank for, I think, influencing any other gay filmmakers to come after it, to try it, to just give it a shot. You might not be trying to make the same fucking film, but at least we have the cojones to say, you know what? We're going to be authentically queer. We're going to represent ourselves a certain way, and we're going to do it unabashedly. Um, And this film is to thank for that in so many ways. But I also think that this film is accessible to non-queer, non-gay horror fans as well because of the very heavy, heavy slasher element. This film takes every trope, every cliche, and I'm saying this in a good way, that we as horror fans have come to know and love from the slasher genre. Films like Halloween, Scream, Friday the 13th, you name it. And it threads it throughout this film so effectively and the atmosphere this film creates it's a halloween film at heart as well it's not just a gay themed slasher film it's a halloween themed slasher film because it takes place on halloween uh and it just has this kind of grandiose feel to it because of the setting which is west hollywood during a huge halloween party block party but i feel like the the horror elements the slasher elements the villain itself i think can appeal to any horror fan you don't have to be a gay horror fan to like this film or to have this film be accessible to you because it not only do I think it does the gay elements very well, it does the horror elements exceptionally well. And I think that just makes the film stand out and, and have a, hopefully a fan base because I do see this film get talked about a little bit, but I tell you, I think this film deserves way more credit than what it gets for being a mid two thousands slasher film coming out during a time when slasher films were dying. I mean, we're talking about the, the the time when saw and torture porn was starting to become all the rage. And you get this little indie, no holds bar slasher flick that comes out, gives us a kick-ass villain, cool death scenes. And it kind of, you know, kind of went under the radar. It sort of picked up in popularity as years go, as years have gone by. But I think this film deserves a lot more credit. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, I'm I'm hungry to have this conversation with you because we have evolved so much. This is going to be an in-depth, well thought out conversation versus what was loosey goosey and <laughs> kind of just off the cuff. Our first conversation we had about this was fun, but this is I think would be really introspective. I have a lot of really awesome notes, and I can't wait to get into this with you. Well, yeah. Before we get into it, Roger, I just want to thank. We have to do this. I want to thank um, a new patron that signed up for our Patreon. So we want to give a big shout out to John Horton, who subscribed at our $5 a month level. So he's getting access to all kinds of good top three mini episodes and talking bodies episodes. And guys, we're back up in the double, double digits with our Patreon. Like the last two months, we have seen a, a, an increase in subscribers. So do yourself a favor. Check it out. We have 20 full-length reviews of films and then we have like 20 mini episodes where we talk about our top three whatever our top three choices for that week i think what did we just do we did top three uh settings for horror films and then we have like 18 talking bodies episodes where we just shoot the shit about anything horror related so literally almost 60 bonus episodes you can access so you know check it out www.patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. But right now it is all about Hellbent. It is all about Hellbent. And my first thing that I have to throw out at you, Troy, to get the wheels moving is where the fuck 
is the remaster edition of this movie because tell me there isn't an audience oh, for it. Oh, I was just thinking that this film needs a, desperately a blue a Blu-ray release, remastered 4K if possible because you know, I have the DVD and it's not the greatest quality. It's certainly better than what you can find out there on online streaming, but still I think this film would highly benefit from a crisp remastered version because as i mentioned the setting of this film is so so grand and so fun and it just puts you in the middle of this huge party halloween party but it's sometimes it's very hard to make out what's going on and there are moments actually roger where the killer is kind of lurking in the background that i never noticed until like my fourth or fifth watch because i'm going to tell you i watched this film four times to prepare for this episode and like the fourth time i noticed oh my god there's the but you don't see it because it's so dark so yes someone give us a blu-ray release of this film please 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 well and not just because troy not just because it would greatly enhance the viewing process getting through what is at times a very muddy looking film and i don't think it's the film's fault it's simply the the copy that's available to the public that amazon prime whatever the fuck that is, like whoever filmed it off their VHS TV screen and then uploaded it to Amazon Prime. Like it literally, it's the worst quality I've ever seen for a film ever on Amazon Prime. It's mind blowing to me how bad this this cut of this film is. Like give this a remastering. But I'm telling you, the DVD is not much better. I own the DVD. It is not much better than what you see on Amazon Prime. It's a little crisper, but not by much. So... I feel like this film, yes, someone out there, the gay in the gay heavens, please come down and remaster this film. But yeah, I agree with you. And I also agree with you because, I mean, this film has, let's be honest with you, let's put it right out there as two gay men. This film has a beautiful cast. Oh, and I want to see them in all of their 4K glory because this cast is stunning. They're so, I mean, honestly, my youngest uh, years as a out and queer man uh, delving into his sexuality. So I'm talking like my late teens, my early 20s. This came out in 2004, my senior year of high school. How influential is that to have these very uh, attractive men in an accessible horror film? Um, and, and another reason why they need a re-release is because the audience that existed in 2004 when this came out, I mean, come on. Nowadays, the landscape has changed. People are clamoring for this kind of material. This is why queer horror is succeeding right now. And this was one of the first. This really was one of the first. So re-releasing this title, I think, would draw it a fresh new audience that had no idea it even existed unless they went searching for it in the depths of horror history. You know, And they will want this title, I assure you. Oh, absolutely! If they can re- if they can do a a four K remastered release of Lovers Lane, <laughs> which we were going to re- uh, do last year, but we couldn't, you couldn't find a copy of it because it was out of. If they can do that, just because Anna Ferris is in it, you are right. This is strike while the iron's hot because it is a perfect climate to release what is, like you said, the very first one of the very first gay full gay theme slasher films. Do it because yes. There's an audience that's thirsty for it. I know I am. I I mean, this film, let's just get right into it. I, I think it it does so many things right. And like I said, what I like about this film is that not only can you tell that the director, the writer-director, is a gay man himself, but you can also tell that he has a major passion, knowledge, and respect for the slasher genre. 
because everything that he does with this film, I mean, blends those two elements perfectly and it never feels forced. It never feels fake. Uh, you can tell he's done his homework. You can tell he is a huge fan of the 80s films. This film starts out in a very, a, a scene that we've seen many times in a horror film, Urban Legend, Final Exam, you name it. There are tons of horror films that, that start or have a scene with two characters making out at a lover's lane. We just, I just mentioned one, lover's lane. This film takes that trope, follows it to a T, but we get two gay characters. And right away, the sexual antics between the two of them get pretty, I don't want to say graphic because let's be real here. This film does not have nudity. There's not a lot of overtly sexual situations in this film. And I don't know you know, if it, if it was made now, if they would maybe push that envelope a little bit more, but I feel like for 2004 to show right away, the first two minutes of the film, a guy eating out another guy in his car is I think was pretty bold. Yeah. I mean, when you mentioned the, the creator of this film, knowing his shit, the script is great. I mean, the script is honestly, it hits all the beats you expect from the classic formula, not just the opening, but as the film progresses, it, it it hits all of the key beats. You have a great final boy whom, again, I do not give enough credit, is a quite a, a unique character, is really well played, and we will come to find out very quickly. It has a really great character dynamic between him and the love interests and his friends. They're all really well written. They're very much of the time. But I wouldn't say these are two-dimensional characters. They're all going through kind of their own struggles. They're exploring who they are as people. They're learning some of the hardships of the queer community. It's very much 2004. These boys are mostly all white, but they are still starting to chip away at a lot of the topics that exist within the queer community. Maybe not as much as we've come to see nowadays in 2023, but it's there. And it's definitely something that needs to be acknowledged and respected about this film for being a progressive piece of cinema in general. I The characters in this film, for me, is what makes this film stand out. Um, even as gay characters, I feel like the dynamic between these characters is so authentic and never really stereotypical. I, I don't find, and I may be, you know, I've, I've heard conversations online about this film and like the characters being stereotypes. I personally do not think that these characters are necessarily stereotypes at all. And that's what I really like about this film. I mean, when we think about the stereotypes that exist in the gay community and Roger, we could start naming them off willy nilly because there's a lot of them. I don't really feel like any of these characters fit what we would suspect or what we would put under the umbrella of, oh, there's a gay stereotype. That's this character. Oh, here's another gay stereotype. That's this character. These characters seem very real. They're each, like you said, well-written. They have a just a relationship with each other that just feels, I don't know, it feels warm. It feels natural. And I think my attachment to these characters is what makes the film, again, that much more impactful because you don't want to see anything really bad happen to these characters. And I think that's a, a huge testament to, like you said, the writing and the acting. Now, again, this opening scene, these two these two characters, George and I think I can't remember the other one's name, they're pretty disposable because they're our opening victims. But what happens is they're in the car 
on lover, you know, at a lover's lane parked, they're running around. There's a, a cool imagery of the one holding a whole a bunch of balloons. So you see all these colorful balloons run through this foggy night until they get back in the car. They start making out. One thing leads to another. Like I said, the one starts kind of going down on the other one as he lays back and sticks his head out the the window. And while they were making out, there is a glimpse of a figure run by the the front windshield. So we do see that. And I mean, it wastes no time because this, this kid's getting his getting eight now and all of a sudden the, the killer shows up and hacks his head off with a sickle causing him to kick the the driver's side window and shatter it which i thought was kind of a cool touch and the other kid kind of oh my god you really are ticklish and he kind of scoots up to see and he sees that this his boyfriend's been decapitated and all of a sudden the killer busts the sickle through the the other windshield and we cut to very stylish opening credits with a kind of a, a really cool catchy what would you call it? Grunge song that plays over the credits? Oh, I love these credits. The credits are actually pretty fierce. I mean, it it dips you into the the nightlife real quick. And I think it's a really nice, um, aggressive introduction to the film, uh, which fits the tone of the movie perfectly. And, and, you know, touching on this opening real fast, just to kind of acknowledge, again, like you said, this is, is very much something we've seen before, but in how it's approach just as a scene removing the queer element it's a great take on the lover's lane kill like you see gore you see a great decapitation you see like you said the 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 foot kick to the glass i love that touch um the banter between these boys feels natural i don't know who leaves an event with that many goddamn balloons that seems like a lot of a lot of (laughs) unnecessary uh trouble to be dealing with all that shit but okay um but it does add such a like a great colorful pop to what is a very dark and shadowed sequence. The, the colors of those balloons, the oranges and the blues, it's it's a really vibrant um, note to open on. And, and I just think it's just a really beautifully executed scene. The shot of the night sky as he's looking at the moon, which they cut back to throughout the course of the film too, when he's like, oh, wow, right before he sees the killer. It's such a great beat before that killer introduction. It's the signs of good filmmaking that I look for from any film, be it independent you know, professional Hollywood, queer, straight, whatever. It just executes it very well regardless. Yeah, we have to mention that, yes, you are right. We do get the first glimpse of the killer in this scene, and we see a quick glimpse of him standing over the the victim, uh, and we get that really cool silhouette of this mask that has horns. It ends up being virtually a, a devil's mask is what this killer is wearing. That's pretty much all he's wearing, a devil's mask and some tight, tight pants, no shirt, which... We appreciate because, you know, how, how, how often do you get a killer that is just downright sexy? And and this dude is, yes, he's a brutal killer, but good God, when you see him in all his glory, you're like, oh. You know, there's a part of me that for the longest time was really resistant to this aspect of the killer because I was like, oh, of course they're over-sexualizing the queer element. Oh, like that just seems so very like quote unquote gay of them. But, you know, now and in my mid-30s, looking back on this movie and making the very queer and bold choice to have the killer be physically attractive truly is a very thought-out decision because this guy uses his physicality, his appearance, to just kind of weave amongst the crowds unnoticed. And it creates for a very intimidating force that even though he's not necessarily 
what I would call scary. He's still threatening. And when in, when he's used in the right scenarios, those moments can be scary because I believe this gigantic, hulking, beautiful, muscular man could fuck me up, both sexually and <laughs> violently. <laughs> like, he is so hot, but he is intimidating. So I think they made a really wise call here playing the sexuality into the killer's overall aesthetic because I can't really think of many other movies that have done that or pulled it off. It's very unique to this film. No, and I think it. I think you're right. It is a great decision because then it allows him at certain points in the film to get close to victims that he may not have otherwise been able to. He's using his looks. He's using his physicality to be able to get close to these victims to almost lure them. And it, you know, there's scenes throughout the film where I don't know how many characters encounter the killer and tell him how hot he is. So, in that regard, it is. It makes sense because people sort of flock to him and it makes it easier for him then to be able to do what he does. He also has in turn, he also has a very distinct kind of look that he's going after. And so it all kind of, I think is a very um, subtle, I want to say very subtle dig or recognition of maybe the, um, I don't know the, the, the vanity complex that, Mm-hmm. exists in the mm-hmm. gay community about, Oh, you, you have to look a certain way because the killer looks a certain way for a specific reason. But then the killer also only targets victims that look a certain way. Exactly. No, I think it's very much played into that. I think you're right. Yeah. So yeah, after this great opening scene, it's short, but it's very impactful. We cut to who ends up being our protagonist, Eddie, the beautiful, beautiful Dylan Fergus. Yeah, those lips. Those lips, those eyes, oh, that hair. That's so fair. He has like a snow white complex, milk white skin, dark raven hair, a glass eye as we come to find out. But we'll touch on that shortly. Eddie is a character who, for me, I have come to really appreciate more over time. He is played as a goody goody and you know in your 20s i think that that's the friend you need to have around (laughs) like you you need to have kind of prude reserved gay friends because i know me i was diving in head first i appreciated having that friend that kind of kept me grounded and i believe eddie i believe that he's genuinely kind of demure and just well-intentioned the whole backstory with the cop you know like for all the Uh, opinions people have on the police force for whatever reasons i think he's going about wanting this for all the right reasons to honor his father to protect people these all come from really great places within this character um and he is just immensely likable he may be vanilla as all hell but he is sweet and i buy it i totally buy it and i like seeing this likable depiction of a queer individual of a gay man he's not catty or bitchy that's again that is my point coming back to what i said opening this episode eddie is not like your stereotypical gay he like you said he's demure he he's gorgeous but he's not He's not like aware of it, so to speak. And he's not like, he's not conceited. He's not bitchy. He's not stuck up. In fact, he's very like motherly towards the young Joey character that we meet earlier or meet later. Very protective of Joey. He's the, Eddie is definitely the no nonsense guy that is kind of trying to keep everyone in line. You know, he has several comments throughout the film to different characters. Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Oh, you shouldn't be doing this. He, he is a protector, which makes sense because He does work in a police station and he wants to be a cop. His sister is a cop. 
Uh, there's this whole opening with him when we get introduced to him that he is doing something that's very like, I don't know, high schoolish. He's looking at um, mug shots of hot guys and printing them out. It starts like a weird note for Eddie. I'll say this, that whole bit. I'm like, that seems like something that would get somebody fired by today's standards, at least. But you know what? I mean, the poor guy's got a glass eye at this point. Like, let him have his pictures, I guess. I don't know. And I like that sister. I do. I think I like seeing that he has whom I assume to be a straight sister who seems to be very loving and protective of him. I mean, she seems to really care about him. Oh, yeah. I wish we would have got a little bit more of her even. But yeah, she uh, she comes up to him, plops some crime scene photos down in front of him. And we see that it is the crime scene that happened the previous night. We see the decapitated bodies. Uh, and he is like, oh, wow. And she's like, happy Halloween. Two gay guys were killed at Lover's Lane last night. And then she does see that he's printed out these pictures and she kind of gives him, she razzes him a little bit and said, oh, are you going to have some personal time in the bathroom later? <laughs> who do, who doesn't love some rough, fresh out of prison, uh, rough trade, to be honest? I get it. <laughs> <laughs> They need love too. Uh, the sergeant then calls Eddie into his office and wants to know that what his plans are for tonight. And Eddie's like, Oh, I'm going to the carnival with some friends. And he informs Eddie, Hey, two homosexuals. That's what he's two homosexuals were murdered last night. You didn't know him. Did you? And Eddie's like, no. And what is revealed is the, the, the sergeant wants him to distribute these flyers about town. Uh, getting seeking information about the murders, right? And Eddie says he will definitely do it if he can wear his dad's uniform for Halloween. And the sergeant hesitantly agrees, but lets him do it. Thank fucking God the sergeant lets him do it because boy, fucking oh boy, does Eddie look fucking hot in this police costume. Thank you, sergeant, for letting Eddie wear this. Best, best decision of the film. I feel that this request to wear his father's uniform in most scenarios would oh i know it's would corny knock over oh it's corny but like you know what man i feel like they cast this fucker first based off how he filled that suit because oh. every inch of it i mean he was sewn into it like olivia newton john <laughs> in those leather pants in the finale of Grease. <laughs> this guy's ass cannot breathe and i am so thankful for that he looks fucking gorgeous um and because he is played so innocently some to some capacity you know so um thoughtful and and non like sexual he doesn't seem like he's trying to put off a sexy energy he's all the sexier because of it he's walking drag queens across streets and you know strutting handing out these flyers and people are just like holy shit sit on my face in those goddamn pants man <laughs> and again that is what I, that is what i love about this eddie character is he does not realize how damn sexy he is some of the other characters are all about their looks but not in an obnoxious way honestly um but eddie is very like i really like this montage yeah i was i when the film first started and i first thought i was a little creeped out by him printing out pictures of of convicts that he thought was hot but i really think that this montage after the sergeant lets him wear his dad's uniform actually makes him instantly likable i mean he goes home he puts the uniform on he goes to a little costume shop to buy a fake badge yes there's scenes of him just strutting down the street putting flyers on cars there's a there's this rough looking drag queen that's that sees him and she's like "Ooh, i just love an ass in blue 
I love her. She's one of the, she's one of my favorite characters in the movie. There's a bunch of little cameo moments like that too. Little characters that feel very authentic to the queer scene. And one thing that has to be acknowledged about this movie, I think, I mean, almost more than anything, is how they manage to capture the vivid and diverse and absolutely insane queer culture a around halloween and b in in somewhere like west hollywood where we thrive where queers thrive and can be their authentic selves you know this movie doesn't necessarily have a ton of people of color it doesn't have really like a you know a trans character or anything but i feel like it still is aiming to lovingly depict a very vivacious queer community and it it's all the better for it. The environment in which all of this is going on is consistently, constantly queer and filled with this amazing energy that becomes this nightlife that feels just not forced at all. It feels so real. And fuck, man, I want to be part of this nightlife. Yeah, that's the thing is it, it paints the community in a very, I think, a very positive light. There's not a lot that's that's shown that is like, oh, um, that's kind of odd. Everything is it's just very normal and natural and everyone is interacting with each other in a very positive way so i do like that depiction interestingly enough because you've mentioned it a couple times that there are no characters of color that are prominent in the film and just scrolling through imdb uh, i thought it was interesting because that is addressed and just a piece of imdb imdb trivia that's put out there that is i don't know kind of questionable to have it included but i want you to think about it it says the IMDb trivia for this film, and I'm assuming the director did it. Um, it says the director wanted a more diverse cast, but could not find actors of color to who wanted to star in a gay horror film. Wow, huh? I wonder if that was simply based off the you know the social climate of 2004, or when this was filmed even earlier than that. You know, probably around like 2000, 2001 at that time. Yes, yes, because this this film took. This film was filmed over a course of a long period of time. This was not filmed like consecutively over like 15 days, like I've done my films or whatever. This film was spread out over almost a year and a half, I believe, which if you pay really close attention, you can tell because hairstyles and body weights change um, a little bit throughout the film for specific characters. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting uh, that the director said he wanted a diverse cast, but just could not find actors of color that wanted to be in a gay horror film and again that was 2004 that's not that long ago but nowadays i think that you you would not have that issue no and that's again why i i think that this film would really do well with a re-release overall to this young audience because mentalities have changed so much in such a short period of time i mean tell me that tell me that a fucking sequel to this couldn't address some of these little issues. I mean, come on, tell me this. Just say, I know, wait, but <laughs> the sequel inevitably we're going to mention a sequel to this. But let's, I know. let's keep okay. going because yes, that's <laughs> one of my biggest. Um, so yeah, we get this little montage. He does help these drag queens across the street, um, and as he's handing out flyers, he notices at the tattoo shop across the street this very sexy shirtless man come out for a smoke. And immediately draws his attention. So when the shirtless man goes back into the tattoo parlor, Eddie follows in and asks if he can hang a flyer for the uh, murder the night before in the tattoo parlor. And the lady's like very disinterested. She's like, yeah, whatever, knock yourself out. 
but he's there basically to just gawk over this gorgeous man who is being tattooed. And there's this moment you see like the blood going down his back and it's going towards his ass crack and the tattooist hurries up and wipes it away. And Eddie's just kind of drooling. And he notices in the mirror that the guy sees him. So he kind of fumbles and leaves out of the, the, the tattoo parlor in a rush. I cannot even begin to describe to you the impact that Brian Kirkwood as Jake had on me as a young, uh, not even 20 something yet. I mean, as a young, like 18, 19 year old, when I first saw this, this actor and this character single-handedly defined my taste in men for my, for the length of my twenties. Sexy bad boys with tattoos who are rebellious and make bad choices, but have a certain charm about them. Give it me, give it to me gaunt, give it to me lanky, give it to me lean muscle, dark hair, dark features, brooding, but overly sensitive at the same time. Describes him to a T, <laughs> to a T, but fucking a man. And I do believe this actor is straight, but does he not absolutely nail this character? completely nailed it and make him so fucking likable despite his flaws pure sex appeal and again i'm going back i'm going to keep saying this not your stereotypical portrayal of a gay man particularly in 2004 let's just put that out there uh, he mo- he drives a motorcycle he smokes cigarettes he's very you know he's getting tattooed and, and so Seeing this character portrayed the way it is, again, again, I think for 2004, very progressive, very progressive. And the dynamic between Eddie and Jake, who we find out is Jake, is also just so, again, authentic, charming, sweet. Like you, you, while you're watching these two interact, you just want to be like in their shoes because they have this instant sort of connection once they really start to get to know each other. And and it's just like, Oh my God, this is so charming. This is like what I want, what anybody wants to find, you know? And it's, it's just like almost immediate, the chemistry between these two. The the pursuit between the two of them is so, so well played and so well written. And they're such different personalities, which creates this great balance between the two of them because you know, they both, they both have their own struggles. They both have their own um, kind of internalized issues that they're kind of working through. And it's explored, you know, briefly. But either character is given a moment to kind of uh, develop further. And we as the audience learn more about them. Um, and they because of that, they form this really endearing duo that I think brings out the best of each other in a lot of different moments, in a lot of different ways. And I would love to see just the happy sending for the two of them. I really would because these characters are just lovable. Okay, we're going to get there. That's the ending, Roger. We're, we're jumping way ahead. <laughs> that, because that does, yes. I, w- I would love to see what became of these two characters as well. And again, I think the sequel question when you talk about this film is something that's brought up constantly. Because let's be honest, it was well set up for a sequel that just never happened. And I don't know why, but... I think I mean more along the lines of I don't want to see harm come to these two because I want oh, them, I get, okay. I want them to make it through this movie and I don't want one of them to have to lose the other one. You know, I yeah. want to see these two get to have happiness because of what you said. I this is what I wanted for myself as a young gay. I wanted that relationship. Well, they get they get some interaction because when uh after 
Eddie kind of rushes out of the tattoo parlor. He's in the parking lot playing basketball with cans as he's shooting cans into a trash can. Jake comes out and sees a, that there's a flyer on his motorbike. Eddie tells him, oh, yeah, two guys were murdered last night. And Jake's response is, yeah, I'm reading that. And he's like, how did it happen? And Eddie says, I can't tell you that because it could jeopardize the case. Uh, and as you know, Jake sizes him up and as he's getting ready to leave, Eddie says the killer cut off their heads, cut their heads clean off and took them with him. <laughs> and Jake's like, well, I think you just blew your investigation, tosses the crumpled paper into the trash can and gets on his motorbike and goes. But it's a it's a quick little interaction, but it's you can definitely tell that there is some good old sexual tension between the two of them. But I like that Jake is not biting right away, per se. No. He blows him off. He kind of plays back at him a little bit. He chats with him for a second, but then he just blows him off. And I like that, um, which leads to this really fun, innocent pursuit where you do get this whole thing where Eddie is like genuinely interested in this guy and pursuing him the way he thinks it should be handled. And you could tell Jake has never dealt with this before. So this is a really fun setup to introduce him to this very sweet individual. Well, as he's walking back down the streets of West Hollywood, he catches his roommate in a little old, 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 like SUV, uh, basically having sex with not only a girl, but we find out a guy that comes out of the car. And again, this is, his roommate Chaz, who is one of the kind of protagonists of the film as well. There's this core group of like four individuals that venture off to this party together. Chaz is the roommate. And I like Chaz. I mean, Chaz is a very, of all the characters, Chaz, Chaz, I would maybe say is the most stereotypical, but not really because, you know, he is bisexual. Obviously he's having sex with men and women. Um, there's a moment later on in the film when he's kissing a woman, but then he, you know, right away he's following guys into the back arcade of the bar. So a very sexual character, but again, you don't really, you weren't really seeing bisexual men portrayed this kind of boldly in films. And at least they made him likable, man. You know, at least like all of these guys, none of these characters are written to be unlikable. That's something we've discussed with so many films being the Achilles heel of, of a lot of films that could otherwise be regarded as good movies. If, if you have a shitty cast, that can ruin the whole thing. These guys aren't just pretty, they're fucking likable. I like their friendship. That's something you don't get in a lot of gay cinema in general. People are always stabbing each other in the backs. Yes, people get stabbed in this, really, but not in this social circle. They have each other's backs. They're friends. They support each other. They do. There is not a moment of conflict between any of these characters. They are they are together that for that evening. They actually talk about here in a, a minute that they're really not out looking for sex. It's just about having a good time with each other. After he catches Chaz, they go to this cafe because they're waiting for the character of Joey to get off work. And they go in. Joey is uh, like a waiter there. And he's like, give me three minutes to change. The youngest, like kind of the twinkiest of the bunch uh, that we end up realizing is very um, innocent, very high schoolish. He is like fixated on this one guy, the entire film, this Jared Reynolds that he has this major crush on. And his whole goal for the evening is to get Gerald Reynolds phone number. And I can see why when we see Jared, but it, it just, it's this character is just so, I think we can relate because we've, we've all been there or we all know young gays that are like this, right? 
Um, and I like the fact that the guys, the older guys that are around him, because Joey does seem like the youngest one, they all have his back. You know, it's per- particularly Eddie. Eddie is very protective of Joey. Uh, so Joey goes into the back to get off uh, or to get to change and do his costume. And as Chaz and Eddie are sitting there, we get this beautiful blonde drag queen in this purple sequin dress walk in. Lo and behold, this is the fourth member of this group. This is Toby, who, again, god damn, Toby is so fucking likable. I love the fact that they managed to take a character who would normally be, you know, the very conceited, self-obsessed character. He still has some of those traits, but they give him such a great human arc, a great uh, bit of meat to chew on in this movie, in the sense that, they take a very beautiful individual and they put him in a very uncomfortable and vulnerable situation, which is, you know, he's dressed up for Halloween. He's dressed up fully in drag for the first time ever, walking around in heels. His ass still looks great. His arms, I mean, my God, this is a beautiful guy and he's in, in drag. And out of all the characters, Toby's character, I would say, fascinates me the most because it's so against type for this role. Uh, for this to be the kind of journey he goes on, he really goes on this like unique self-exploration, realizing some of the hardships that like feminine men and drag queens deal with that he's never had to deal with. And the fact that it goes there, you know, I'm sure by today's standards, they'd want it so much deeper. They'd want to see so much more. You know what, man? I think his journey is really humbling and i feel for him by the end of it i think he's had his eyes opened to a certain extent and um i i feel for him what he's going through i 100 agree with you i love toby's story arc i love the fact that he is this as he puts it he's 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 a sex symbol every other day of the year he needs one night off. So his one night off is is dressing in a in, in drag and he looks great um but we also realize that he's like this, he's a model. He's featured on a billboard in West Hollywood. I mean, this is a stunning guy. And I do love the fact that they do very subtly make a statement about how feminine men and how drag queens are treated because he normally is used to getting, walking in and being the center of attention, guys drooling over him. Throughout this film, he can't get anybody to even give him the time of day because he's in drag. And it's just, I think a very interesting, but also a very realistic portrayal of what he's going through. I think a lot of people can experience and yeah, you do feel sorry for him to the extent that he's just never experienced this before, but also he is, it's humbling him. Like you said, it's, it's, it's not making him bitter. It's just like, he's realizing, oh, wow, this is what certain people have to put up with in our community. And I love that it was done very subtly. Yeah, you're right. Today, they probably would have hammered it home, but I think it's the way it's done is brilliant. Uh, I love Toby. I love the character. It's just, it's, it's amazing. And such a valid, valid reflection on our community. Like, let's be honest. That is, if, if anything, we do like to break ourselves up into smaller minority groups and, oh, femme gays and, drag queens and we always have critiques and criticisms on why we're not into femme guys and so forth and it has this it's it's this whole thing with like internalized issues that exist within our community and this really kind of hits at home the way we treat 
some of those that exist within our community, how we break them down to make them kind of lesser than us, that that mask guys will not pursue femme guys or queens for certain reasons because they're not masculine enough. Like we have to size each other up. It was a ballsy move then to approach it. And I think it really resonates now way more than it did then. Yes, I was just going to say it's way more relevant now than it was then. And again, another reason why this film needs to be more well-known, uh, particularly, like you said, to young queer horror fans that are up and coming. They need to see this because it's 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 one of the first. And again, it's one of the first. I'm going to say it's still one of the best. Oh, yes. We'll get, there. we'll get there as we get to the end because there have been there have been subsequent gay themed horror films, but this one to me is still the best one. So they are waiting for Joey. So Eddie goes back into the back to get Joey. And he finds him struggling to put on his harness and little like leather jock strap. And I, again, this is the first moment that you realize that Eddie is definitely protective of Joey because Joey's initial costume is like a black leather harness with like black leather, like almost a, a thong or a jock strap. And he's like, oh, I'm stuck. Well, then it, you kind of, it cuts and it goes back to them. And he, Eddie has put him in blue jeans <laughs> and Joey's, res- Joey says, are you sure blue jeans go with this? And Eddie's like, yeah, you look great. You look great. But that's kind of your first m- real glimpse of Eddie trying to protect Joey because he doesn't want him to be that revealed out in the middle of West Hollywood on Halloween. Night. Oh, and the little padlock for the extra touch, which just come into play. Um, but it's all these little things where he's both trying to, you know, be protective of him, like you said, with the maternal instinct, but also kind of help him along his queer journey. I think that is my favorite aspect about this circle of how they operate is you, and you touched on it, how genuinely thoughtful and concerned they are of Joey. They're so um, devoted to making sure he feels included. Um, They really care about not just each other, but this this younger individual whom is very relatable and played very well. The actor in this role really nails that just innocent, wide-eyed, curious, easily heartbroken, puppy dog-faced, just eager young queer he really sells it uh and then they say we're gonna have we're gonna go out and have a great night it intercuts then to the killer sharpening his sickle we get this kind of cool shot of him sharpening his sickle and then now it is night in west hollywood and the guys are headed out and this is when you know uh chaz makes the comment that joey you look amazing you're definitely going to get some tonight you're going to have trouble walking and this is when eddie puts the padlock on him and locks it and says if you don't come home tonight, I'm throwing away the key and this is going to be a bitch to get off. So they get into the car and they ultimately they drive to the park where the murders happened just 18 hours before, because even Chas says just 18 hours before two gay guys were brutally murdered here. And his plan is just to park the car there and to walk through the woods to the, um, to the parade and carnival. And Eddie tells them that he did see the crime scene photos and they're like, no, no, what they, what they look like? Were they hot? And he reveals that they didn't have their heads and that whoever killed them must be very strong because the heads were cut clean off. And there's this conversation very like almost like, I don't know, scream-esque almost in its where it goes because Joey says, how could someone kill someone like that? And Toby responds that it's probably just an old gay guy that just came out. That's jealous of hot young guys and just wants to kill him because wouldn't you want to kill us? We're fabulous. And Chaz is like, no, no, no. It has to be about his mother. 
And then Toby says, you know what? It doesn't matter because the guy's long gone. He went back to Louisiana, Oklahoma, wherever, whatever redneck place he crawled out of. He's long gone. We're not going to have to deal with him. And there's this cute little moment where Joey reaches through the back around to the passenger window and grabs uh, Toby and scares the shit out of him. But I do like this little moment, the interaction between these guys, the, the conversation again, almost felt very like scream, like where they're talking about motives and stuff like that. I, I liked it. Yeah. It's some fun connective tissue because overall the connectivity between these focal characters and the killer it's really just boiled down to a matter of wrong place, wrong time. It's not like you're looking for some hidden motive. This movie is not going to unmask a mysterious killer a la a scream, you know, revealing the identity or anything like that. No, this simply is just a mass killer who is clearly infatuated with killing off beautiful young gay men and our heroes, you know, the focal group within the film stumble upon this location they make the bold choice to park the car there and because they do so that really is the only reason the killer becomes drawn to them they do taunt him a bit here in a moment um they do moon him we do get a lovely ass shot from all four of them uh, which i guess is really what seals the deal here with the killer wanting to stalk them but that really is like all we really get that is all you get. And I guess you got to, if you guys like your slasher films where there is a giant killer reveal, a la Scream, a la I Know What You Did Last Summer, a la Urban Legend, and you have to know a motive and you have to know why, 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 you do not get that here, as Roger mentioned. So I know, again, I've seen stuff about this film on the internet. I've read reviews, I've watched reviews, and sometimes people are very negative to the fact that you don't get anything in terms of the killer's backstory or motive. But again, I don't think it's necessary here. I think that the the motive that the killer has is actually quite frightening, right? He latches onto these guys because, yeah, they get out of the car, they go pee before they hike through the woods. And as uh, they're peeing, uh, jo- uh, Eddie notices that the, there's somebody in the bushes behind Joey. So he's like, Joey, get over here, get over here. And they all kind of gather away from where the killer is and this is kind of the first moment that the killer steps out and you get this beautiful silhouette this toned body this horned mask and yeah they taunt him and they ultimately moon him um until he reveals his sickle and they all take off running but yeah that is it that's the 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 fact that they taunted him and mooned him and that they're actually young good-looking guys that's that's all the motive that this killer needs let's talk about some of the cinematography for a moment because one thing that we haven't touched on here is how really like i mean overall low budget this film is you know this is clearly a low budget endeavor however that doesn't mean it doesn't look good it's shot very well and yet another reason why it needs to be remastered what about this transition here where you have the boys run off and it pans and you go through the tree branches and all of a sudden you're in the the crowd the west hollywood streets uh vibrant and you know filled with energy it's such a beautiful segue and you see that uh, multiple times sprinkled throughout the film um, but overall it's it's lit really well it has a really fun colorful yet moody look to it they really use lighting in their favor it's shadowy it's dark it's mysterious and it's just very fluid i mean they took a small budget and they ran with it you see it in the effects you see it in in the overall setting and you definitely see it in the camera work yeah the production value of the film is actually really stellar the, i mean 
we are in the middle of a goddamn packed Halloween carnival, the entire film. All the extras, all the costuming that the extras are wearing is just stunning to look at. You're looking at all these different things going on. So yeah, the the fact that they were able to film this during this actual real Halloween parade and, and, and do what they did is just adds that much more value to the film. It looks way more expensive than I'm sure it was. Because West Hollywood, yeah, as the guys get to West Hollywood, it's popping. There's drag queens, costumes, dancing, close-ups of bleeding masks. Uh, the guys get there and they do realize that the devil, that the killer, the devil killer from the woods is following them. And they're like, uh, whatever. Uh, there's this moment where they get their gift bags and they realize all that's in it is pineapple loop. You know, they, they kind of head out. And then this is the moment where they are kind of deciding what bar they want to go to. And Eddie sees Jake pull up on his motorcycle in front of this club with this stilt dancer, this like a random dancer on stilts, just dancing around. Oh my God. <laughs> Tell me more about that character. That that's one of my favorite, one of my favorite moments of the movie is it cuts over to the entrance of this bar. It's a really great shot. There's like an arrow pointing down to the door, and there is this just this mysterious latex wearing seductress of a dancer spinning and kicking. And I mean, I don't know what's going on, but I want to go to that fucking place. Well, and do you notice the bar is called Meat? I'm going to tell you something right now. <laughs> if you if you really are going to think that. I didn't take influence from this film existing to create my own horror film. I mean, I, yeah, I, absolutely the case. And I, the the name over that door is something I've acknowledged since I was a young teen. Like I said, since I was you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty when I saw this, um, I am fully aware of the fact that that bar is called Meat. I've always been fascinated with it, and when I decided to associate it with you know the material within my film, it made perfect sense to me. But it's definitely homage material to that film and to that aspect yeah i i figured i figured because we've talked about this film before and how we, this film has both influenced us in, in quite different ways so i when i saw that i'm like oh okay but they go into this bar and let me tell you it's a happening place it's, it's booming there's it's filled with people dancing drinking clubbing you know everything that you would expect from a club gay club called meat is happening in this bar uh, as they get in, Eddie actually gets the balls to go talk to Jake. And he's like, Hey, I saw you earlier today. I remember at the tattoo shop. And he's like, I was the one that talked to, you know, that told you about the, the, the murders. My name's Eddie. And I love Jake's response because it is, he is so like trying to play hard to get. He's like, what do you want, Eddie? Do I have a stalker? And Eddie's like, well, I just want to know your name. And he's like, well, I don't know. I know you're not a real cop. And, and he's like, well, look, I have my handcuffs. He's like, yeah, but where's your gun? And they get on this conversation about like, oh, I left my gun at home. Jake asks him if he shoots. And he says, yeah, I do. But it's it's been a while. My gun's at home. And Eddie's like, oh, I wanted to be a cop, but I hurt my eye. So Jake's response is, you don't hit on guys very often, do you? Oh, God, I love I love everything about their banter. Jake is so fucking hot. I want to eat his face off. I mean, Jesus Christ. It's just, yeah, you're right. How hard to get he plays. I don't genuinely think he buys into Eddie right away. Um, and even like <laughs> as the movie progresses, they're still kind of getting a feel for each other because they're so different and they handle 
just sex and connection so differently, but they genuinely are into each other. This little moment here, though, when they start to imply towards the eye, the incident with the eye, if there's one thing about this film that's always like (laughs) been such a unique topic for me to touch on, it's that goddamn glass eye, and we're going to get to it. But this this viewing, Troy, I'm going to say... I came in and I fully embrace the glass eye for what it is. Um, And it's such a unique choice. I'm going to touch on it a few times through the progression. There's several key moments where the eye comes up. Um, But I can't really think of many other characters (laughs) that I know of that have glass eyes. (laughs) Well, I feel like the glass eye was, was, was thrown in there for a very specific, a, a, a very specific shot in the film that is unlike anything you've ever seen. Right. And everyone knows what shot I'm talking about. It's on the front of the DVD VHS. Uh, I feel like the glass eye was solely so they could get that shot. But yeah, I do. I do love their banter. I do love the fact that Jake finally tells Eddie his name. And then he's like, what made you change your mind? And Jake's response I wanted to see you shoot. Could that be a little double entendre? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. Uh, there is this moment where Joey's out on the dance floor and the killer we see is watching him because we, we, we now recognize the silhouette of the horn mask and some pervert is trying to accost poor Joey and, and Chaz comes up and saves the day and tells him, Hey, he's my little bitch. Get away. <laughs> there is this moment here where the live band is playing. There's a, there's a shirtless lead singer. Um, everyone's having a great time dancing. Joey gets pulled up on stage and he's, you know, Joey's awkward. Let's be honest. He's awkward. He's wide-eyed, fawn-eyed, innocent, young. But he's like unsure of what to do. The the lead singer is like, just play along with it. And he becomes part of their performance where he's thrown onto this platform and chainsawed with these fake chainsaws as blood is splattering all over him. And he's just having, he's just thinking it's the greatest thing ever until he's decapitated and they hold up a fake head and he rolls off the platform and is just so fucking excited that this happened to him. He runs up to the group. He's like, Oh my God, did you see me? Did you see me? Just his, just his, so is childlike excitement about being the, the center of attention there for a moment. It's just so, I don't know. You just feel for this kid and you're like, Oh, he's so cute. He's so cute. He's so awkward. I don't know what's going on with the metal performer, that man on the stage or the music he's singing about. He's definitely singing about fucking, fucking butts or assholes or butthole fucking. (laughs) I mean, there's something going on with those lyrics. Very gay, but you know what? But I like it because while this film, you know, you touched on this earlier, while this film may have hints of what is quote unquote stereotypes, like there's a twink. Well, of course there's going to be a twink. That's a major aspect of the queer community. There's a bisexual. Well, there fucking should be. I mean, bisexuals, my partner's bisexual. They exist. Yes, he's over-sexualized. Okay, he's there, though. I'm happy he's represented. Um, I, I do like also how hard they go with the queer community in the sense of how badass and metal this bar is. I mean, like, this is a rough around the edges bar people are covered in fake blood there are meats and legs and arms hung from the the ceiling like decor this is not like your standard like cocktail gay bar this is a rough 
bar and i love it but we've but we if you we've all been in bars like this though roger i've been to, i lived in houston for years i live in vegas now i've been to new york city i've been to chicago come on this is the these are like the the gay clubs that people flock to for a great time there's all kinds of shit going on inside them you don't really want to see or maybe you do but we we know oh, we know right do we know? but uh <laughs> Uh, Jake wants to get out of there. He wants to go to the arcade because uh, Eddie comes to back to the group with Jake, introduces uh, you know Jake to everybody, and is like, "Hey, he wants to go to the arcade." So they're all going to go, and as they get ready to, Joey right away notices that his man crush is in the bar. This Jared. So Joey's like, "I can't go." So Chaz says he will stay with Joey, and Joey goes right up to to this very jock looking jared who's with his two bitchy friends oh these fucking bitches i know okay so we don't talk about stereotype okay these are the two these are the two that are like oh fuck okay whatever but joey's very sweet he's like hey i met you at that party that labor day party and jared's like what labor day party oh you know the one that had like porn stars or whatever And he's like oh yeah that was a lot of parties ago and joey's like oh are you two are you are you guys having a good time and his bitchy friends right like, now? It's boring. It's just freaks and uglies like last year. <laughs> and Joey doesn't know what to do. So he's like, you know what? I'll give you my number. Here's my number. Give me a call sometime. And he has his number printed it, uh, on a like a little business card. And of course, Jared's friends are like, oh, isn't that cute? And Joey's like, okay, fine. I'll see you guys later. Very awkward. And as he's leaving, one of the friends, what's he call him? Like, a, oh, there's a, fr- a freak geek. And you can tell, like, Jared, there's a flash of, of anger or, like, you know, regret on Jared's face that his friends are being so so bitchy towards Joey because he kind of watches him go back into the crowd. I mean, this whole interaction is very awkward. And you feel bad for a little Joey. Well, Joey... One of the things I appreciate about him is he's he's clearly not yet tainted by like the crueler aspects of the gay world. He's not jaded. So when he walks into this, he's nervous and like it goes not only as bad as I think he would have expected it to go, it goes worse because they're just mean to him. And, you know, they could have really gone several different directions with this. They could never have reapproached this again. I do appreciate that coming up here soon, at least like this moment where this character, Jared, um, reemerges for a moment and, and proves himself not to be an asshole. Like I'm thankful for that because I mean, people are shitty, man. People can be shitty. I'm, I'm happy they didn't play into that stereotype, the cruel, the mean aspect. He does actually uh, prove to be not a dick after all. And I am grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. He does provide Joey with a, an immense moment of happiness right before something horrible happens. But yeah, they, uh, Chaz notices Joey running into the bathroom. So he follows him and he's like, Joey, Joey, what's up? What's the matter? He's always like, I feel like I'm going to puke. So Chaz is like, okay, let me take you to this other bathroom. I know where this other bathroom is. So he takes him through the annals of the hallways of this gay bar to the back bathroom where there's there's these guys like make it out and doing drugs and Chaz is like hey can you leave us alone for a minute I got got an issue here Chaz is very like worried and he's like are you going to be okay and Joey's like I think I can take it here I just need to be alone so Chaz lets him be alone Joey tells him don't leave me and as Joe as Chaz leaves the bathroom Joey punches the stall and you can just tell he is just crushed crushed that his this this 
moment he's been hyping the entire day, this meeting Jared and getting his number went so terribly. You talk about relatable moments, Troy, and I think this moment... We can all, I think all gay men can go through, you know, their memory banks and recall several moments that hit this hard and probably around this young too, you know, when you haven't felt uh, what it's like to be not only declined, but declined by somebody or turned down by someone in, in an unnecessarily mean way, the way that those friends treated him was just so like disrespectful, unnecessarily so. So you really, God, you feel for this kid and he plays it really well again. He plays it really well. Yeah, this actor is great. Hank Harris, he's been in a couple things. He was in a movie called Pumpkin with Christina Ricci, which he's great in as well. Yeah, so there's a jump scare that ends up being Jared coming back into the bathroom and telling Joey that he owes him his number. And he's like, hey, we're supposed to go to breakfast tomorrow morning, but... If I get a better offer, I can ditch them. And he apologizes. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that. My friends are in a mood. And the killer we see now is in the stall watching them. And there's this moment where they make, they kiss. Jared kisses Joey and they make out there for a moment. And it's very sweet. You can tell this is, Joey is like awestruck when they pull away from kissing. He's just like, what the fuck is just happening? And Jared's like, tomorrow morning and joey's like oh yeah and as jared's leaving joey's like oh by the way this isn't my costume i borrowed it and jared's like well don't give it back just yet jared's sideburns are are very of the era i gotta say if there's one thing that hasn't aged well it's jared's sideburns but that ass is kicking oh well he's wearing his little crop top football jersey he looks great he's you know he's he's a good looking guy uh, but he leaves the bathroom and Joey is giddy. Oh my God. Joey is so fucking happy. And he doesn't really have time to, to bask in this happiness because the killer bashes, uh, just bolts out of the, the uh, stall, throws the saw door open, pulls Joey in and fucking throws a Halloween bag over his head and decapitates him. I love this. It's so sad because I, Joey's so sweet. He did not deserve this, especially right after having this happen to him. And he was so happy. Well, the fact that they chose to kill off the the youngest, uh, most innocent character first. It's not like they like went and were like, okay, let's kill off sexy Chaz, who's ho- extremely over sexualized. Like, no, they, they they went right for the the gut. They killed off the innocence first, the young one who had no idea this was even coming. There's no idea at all that something menacing is looming just on the other end of that stall. And the fact that it's so brutal, I mean, the way it's shot, you see a lot of it, but it's even the way that they cut away and show his feet kicking as he's bleeding out his poor little, his little cherubic feet, those little black boots kicking all around as the killer just stands there and then fucking decapitates this kid. And the the reveal to the body is honestly probably the the best decapitated corpse I have seen in a film to date. I genuinely mean that. It looks it looks great and it's very shocking. Yeah, I mean they. I I like the fact. Now I don't like the fact that Joey dies. Obviously, I don't like the fact that any of these characters die. But to kill Joey first, the character that you think. I don't think anybody thought, you know, Joey was going to be the final boy because Eddie is introduced first, but like to kill him off first that so quickly and so brutally. Yes, it's it got me, especially in, in his moment of just like bliss and he's brutally murdered. 
But then, yeah, the, the reveal, the camera goes to the top of the stall and looks down and you just see his decapitated body and his little harness just sitting against the wall as blood's pumping out of the, the next dump. Not only that, then you get these two queens. Oh, my God. These girls parade their ass, <laughs> parading their asses into the into the goddamn bathroom talking about not getting any dick and not seeing any cock for, for, for weeks or whatever. And as they're going into the bathroom, the killer comes out. And what does that one say? She, he's, she's like, Oh my God, you are a walking erection. Oh, and then the other one's like, Oh my virgin ears. And she's like, honey, those ears are the only virgin thing left on. Yeah. These two sassy broads. I need a seek. I need a sitcom with these. Give me a buddy comedy. Give me a sequel with those two. Let me see them. Let me see them go up against the killer because these two, these are Troy and I, let me, let me tell you, if we ever get a cameo in anything, it's going to be along the lines of this. And I'm all about it. Are you going to have your hair and little ponytail? (laughs) But I love that we do get these really, again, unabashedly queer characters. And there are little moments of humor. I wouldn't say they're overly exaggerated. I believe these two dames really exist. I be- I believe I know these girls. I've seen them out out in the bars getting into mischief. <laughs> and when the way they react to finding this body, like at first they like open the door and they're like, oh, and they're like, oh, that is not fucking funny or whatever they say. And then it like has a death twitch and they're both like, ah, like, it's so you never see them again, but they leave an impression. Those two. Oh, I love them. Yeah. But poor. Okay. So Joey's dead. Now we cut to Eddie and Jake who are headed to the arcade. Toby's like, fuck this. I'm going to go have a drink. So he goes to the, this bar, this outside bar and orders a drink. And there's this hot guy sitting next to him and he's trying to talk to this guy. And the guy doesn't even respond, like looks him up and down and gets up and walks away. Oh my God. And there is this, another drag queen sitting there sipping her big old, Pina Colada. With that hat. <laughs> yeah, with that oh, huge like hat. Troy and I need that hat. That's going to be our next promo image. <laughs> Toby, Toby's like, for once, I'd like a guy to, for, to like me for what's up here and not what's down there. And the drag queen's just like, you preach it, sister, and takes a sip of her. <laughs> the, the little one-liner characters in this film are honestly some of my favorites. Those dames that were crossing the street earlier in the movie, give me a movie about them. Like, there are so many little random characters that have itty bitty little moments here that i'm like god that felt like such an authentic and well thought out cameo (laughs) like i believe so many of these uh characters are, are based off of real people if not playing themselves you know we do get yeah we do get some moments at the arcade with jake and eddie shooting jake's doing really good eddie doesn't even hit the target once so it's of course jake has to razz him there's this moment where toby's strutting around and he grabs a baseball and he comes back and he's fucking throws it as hard as he can and knocks all of the pins down and all these drag queens are cheering them on like yeah you get it you get it they they find as they are leaving they do find chaz making out with some broad he found snorting cocaine off of her (laughs) and they're headed back into this club and on the way back into the club as chad chaz and his new girl are following they do bump into the killer and chaz actually tweaks his nose he's like oh look at you chaz let's talk about chaz for a moment because i feel like chaz at times kind of like he comes and he goes like he helps move the story along like with Joey but he is off you know making out with people having sex being a a 2004 depiction of a bisexual i think one thing that maybe has uh, not aged as well as other aspects of the film is the fact that of course it's the bisexual who is overly sexualized but he's so fucking likable i don't care about it and i will also say if jake defined my taste in men on one extreme chaz defied my other taste in men which is hot latino italian 
bisexual men. I, I can't get enough of them. Oh my god, I think this guy is just so fucking hot. Probably played by a straight actor, I don't even know. But he does maintain being likable, even after kind of fucking Joey over and going off and getting, you know, getting laid by this broad who's making out with anybody, apparently. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, he is still not portrayed as being an asshole. He's just wasted. He's popping pills the whole course of the film. One thing to acknowledge is is he is the party boy. He's taking the pills. He's trying to give them to his friends. Uh, he's definitely under the influence. And in, as it's getting here to this point, he's really fucked up. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, Chad, Chaz is extremely likable. He's never malicious for the sake of being malicious. The, the bad choices that he makes in the film are simply because he's on something, whether it's drugs, cocaine, hair, whatever he's doing, drunk. That's causing him to make the decisions but he's never like shitty to his friends yeah he left joey but he thought joey was fine because if you remember when jared comes into the bathroom he tells joey hey your friend told me you were in here so of course Chaz would think that joey's gonna be okay so outside jake and eddie and toby split up once again because eddie wants to go look for joey and toby's like god dude you you gotta chill out on that kid and eddie's like no i just will feel better if we find him he says jake do you want to go with me you don't have to if you don't want to. I, I'll understand. And Jake's response is, you trying to ditch me? So they head back to the bar to look for Joey. This is when Toby runs into the billboard that he is featured on. This huge billboard of him as a man laying back in these underwear with his bulge prominently displayed. And there's this buff guy that's just admiring this, this, uh, this billboard. And Toby walks up and he's like, hey, I hear he has a big dick. And the dude's like, yeah, I bet. And Toby asks him to take some pictures of him in front of this billboard. Um, and then it moves back inside the club. Chaz is fucked up. His vision is blurred, as we can see, because we're getting it from his perspective and everything's spinning. He's out on the dance floor, crowded dance floor. Strobe lights are a going. He's popping more pills. And all of a sudden, the killer is there. And fucking hacks him in the stomach twice three times i don't know even know with a sickle and kind of darts away so you get this moment reminds me so much of the opening kill and scream two with jada pinkett you get this moment where he like lifts his hands up off of his stomach and they're all covered in blood and he realizes he's been stabbed and he kind of falls to his knees and he's looking around and he sees the killer behind him and he tries to run the killer catches up with him and you get this moment where like he's trying to cr scream for Toby. who's like literally five feet away from him having a drink. The killer wraps his arm around his mouth and then you get this decapitation and in it's full glory. You don't see like because the strobe lights are flashing. So you get this very decapitation, but again with strobe lights, you're only seeing like flashes of it, but it's super, super effective. I mean, he's murdered on a dance floor literally full of people dancing and it's just makes it that much more like, Ugh. so the Chaz kill, I really like it. I, I do. I want to love it. I want to love it, but a, it's very hard to see now. That's just the quality of the footage at this point, I guess, but also the strobe light is, it, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in beyond that. I don't know for sure if I completely buy that absolutely nobody in this crowd saw this man get brutally murdered in front of them. Like, it, it is, it's a stretch. It's an artistic stretch. It looks cool. 
but I don't know if I buy it because there are people everywhere. And then there's a shot of the body just laying there bleeding out on the ground and everyone's just having co- like cocktail talk, drinking their martinis. Nobody's noticed this very violent. The killer is not being discreet here. He's not trying to keep it subtle. He's thrashing and full on raising his scythe up and down, slashing him. And then he fucking just decapitates him right there. And nobody notices it. Nobody even remotely picks up on it and um i don't know if i buy it i don't know well no i mean yeah yeah i mean it is the one that you have to suspend the most of belief with because i totally felt the same way despite the strobe lights despite everything somebody would notice i mean the dance floor is packed scream 2 plays it off effectively because the fact of everyone in the theater has these ghost face masks it's crowded nobody knows what's going on this doesn't have that i mean this is literally a man who hacked hacked a couple times in the chest with a sickle and then decapitated and yeah nobody know nobody notices but it looks fucking cool and i feel like the dance floor is such a major aspect of the queer culture in general like in a way, I feel like they somehow had to involve a moment along these lines. Not saying it had to be a full-on massacre on a dance floor, but there needed to be something involving the, the characters and the killers in on the dance floor together in some way. Because it's such a heavy club-based film. Um, I appreciate it for what it is. I think it looks great. That decapitation is better than I remember it. I think that because it's always so dark, it's something I've almost missed and when i watched it this time around because i was taking notes and specifically looking for things i was like holy shit that's a great kill you have to pay attention it it hap- yeah you really have to pay attention it's hard to see but it is really well done and it's an i guess for Chaz being the party boy of the group it's an appropriate demise for him to die on the dance floor this moment uh after this toby runs outside to puke and as he's outside he notices the killer walking by with the bag of heads and Toby being who he is wanting attention. He's been ignored all night. He's sick of being fucking ignored. He's the cause of his own demise. And it's sad because it's because how he's been ignored all night is why he becomes so pushy with this killer. And he just so happens to pick the wrong person to be pushy with. Right. He's just fed up. So he goes up to the killer. He's like, Hey, I know you. And he's like demanding this killer, give him attention. He's like, I don't normally look like this. You know, you're a, Hey, you, you look like you play sports and the killer just ignoring him until he's like, God damn it. You superficial faggot. And he takes his driver's license and tosses it at him. He's like, this is me. And the killer stops, picks up the driver's license. He's like, it's Toby, Toby Weatherly, you know, five foot nine, 150 pounds, brown hair. And he like starts, he takes off his wig. He takes off his earrings and he pulls down his dress to reveal his very built muscular chest, gets the killer's attention. And the killer walks back, you know, walks up to him, touches his face, kind of wipes some of the makeup off him. Toby closes its eyes and says, I'm never doing drag again. And just like that, the killer hacks his head off with a sickle. And again, this death affects me because it's like, God damn, Toby, he would be alive if if someone would have given any attention that night he would not have been so desperate to get attention from this killer the desperation of this whole scene in general is really um uh impactful because this is a character who you know i'm sure is normally the the source of of attention and has all eyes on him and he is just not accustomed to the level of disrespect that drag queens can get from certain audiences. And so to see him just 
you know, resort to literally begging. He's literally begging this guy to fuck him. I mean, he literally is saying, look at my goddamn ID. He throws it at him. He's like, this is what I look like. He lets his own insecurity in that moment be the best of him, and it, and it costs him his life. It's really, a, I think, kind of a bold statement on that whole journey he's been experiencing through the whole course of the film. Um, he finally gives in to his own insecurities, you know, and and it's it's something that I think is, again, very relatable. It's so interesting how this film manages to weave these uh, very common threads of a LGBTQ plus community, gay man's journey in general. They, they weave it into these moments, even in the most uh, random violent sequences, it's still touching on things that we can very much play into. Another thing is Chaz's journey with, with drug usage. It's mildly touched upon here, but you know, he's constantly popping pills. And when he's on the dance floor and he's so fucking drugged up that he doesn't even notice exactly that he's been injured right away. Cause he's probably numb to it. You know, like, drugs are definitely very prevalent in the queer scene. There's a few characters who who decline him multiple times. Eddie, he offers him a pill at one point. Eddie's like, absolutely not, you know? That ends up being his demise. So I do find it interesting that this film does take these uh, somewhat negative elements of, of the queer community, the usage of the drugs, the self, uh, often our self-obsession with our looks, um, and it plays on upon those insecurities, upon those weaknesses, and weaves them into the kills. You know, I think that's really takes some great, great writing. Well, again, I, that's why I'm saying you definitely know that this film was written and directed by a gay man because everything is is so authentically weaved in, as you mentioned. Um, Eddie and Jake go back to the club to try to get in, but they are told they cannot because it's a crime scene that someone fell apart on the dance floor is the cop's words. Uh, so Jake hops the fence and Eddie follows him because Jake wants to get his motorcycle. So he, he's going through the fenced in air perimeter. Jake has no problem climbing the fence to get to his bike, but Eddie is struggling. And there's this moment where like Jake's trying to help him up and Eddie can't do it. And Jake's like, you know what? Just go back around. There's a gate I'll meet you at. And as Eddie turns, Jake is like, Hey, who's that? One of your buddies. And this is a moment where the killer full Fledge fucking slices Eddie's face with the with the sickle, and there's this chase scene through this fenced-in perimeter. You know, Jake's trying to climb the fence to get to Eddie. Eddie's hiding, um, and you do get the scene, the infamous scene where Eddie is behind a fence, and the killer is hacking at him with the sickle. And there's this moment where the killer hits him in the eye with the sickle, but the his he has a glass eye so the point just hits the glass eye and the killer ugh, scrapes it and it makes that sound i'm like ugh. and as the killer pulls back to do it again jake shows up with the cop i really appreciate the overall simplicity of how the story um is executed from this point moving forward because it's just as simple as they get back to the, the bar, they can't get in. He wants his motorcycle, so they go to get it. And the killer has literally, the, the entire course of this festival has been stalking this group of individuals as they go from bar to bar. It's as simple as that. He finally gets them in a place where they're vulnerable, and he kills them. And it's 2004. Cell phones are not an aspect that's even really touched on in this film. So they don't have any means to really be in communication with each other. So... As friends do, they, you know, they thought that their friends went and probably met up with other guys and gone off fucking, you know? I mean, it just makes sense. There, There's no reason to even question it further. Oh, yeah. Well, that comes up because they get to the police station and 
Jake goes into the bathroom to to kind of wash his face and look at his eye and he's like messing with his eye and it kind of pops out a little bit at the same moment that Jake comes in and sees it. So Eddie has to tell him he has a jammed or he has a fake eye because he jammed it on a pipe and he lost his eye. Eddie's like, you know, I don't know if you want to call it a night or I should probably get back to my friends. And Jake's like, no, 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 your friends are fine. We should get out of here, me and you together. Uh, and so they hop on Eddie's motorcycle and head back to his place. They get there. No one is home. And they assume, like you mentioned, Eddie just assumes that Chaz is still at the bar or met somebody. I will say the one thing that has always bothered me about this film. If I have anything really negative to say, and this is a very nitpicky thing that just bothers me is like how easily these two are able to just like forget the fact that they were just attacked by a, a homicidal maniac with a sickle. Yeah. Yeah. And they just go back and act like nothing happened. But I also appreciate this, these final moments of the film, because this is when we do see that Jake and Eddie have a connection. They're at this home. Um, they're at his house by himself. Jake takes off his coat and Eddie notices that he's bleeding. And he's like, Hey, what are you bleeding? And he takes his shirt off and he sees the tattoo. Eddie says, what is, what was that? And he's like, Oh, it used to be someone's name, some asshole's name. And Again, drug use. It's pot, but Jake is smoking pot and and gives Eddie a, a hit of it, and Eddie barely does it. And Jake's like, "That's weak." And there's this very uh, seductive moment where Jake takes a hit of the pot and gets really close to Eddie and blows it in his mouth. They do that twice. They get really close, and you think they're going to kiss, and, and they don't yet. This whole sequence is hotter than porn. Like, let me tell you right now, the, the chemistry between these two is fucking palpable, and a few things to really touch on with this. First, the fact that Jake is hesitant to kiss. You learn so much about him in this moment. Like, this could have just been kind of a throwaway sequence leading to the final, obviously, was the final confrontation. But they really take a moment to let these characters have some time alone together. And I do appreciate that because there is a chemistry there. And they really nurture that for a moment. Um, Jake obviously has been hurt by somebody. It's mentioned, you know, with the tattoo dialogue. It's also brought up in the fact that he's at first not really willing to, to kiss. Like he turns away multiple times when Eddie advances him to kiss. And and you can tell he's hesitant. And Eddie genuinely likes Jake quite a lot. And that's clear. But you can tell Jake is not necessarily comfortable with being pursued like that. I think that's very vulnerable of this character. He's a sensitive character, despite being a hard, badass, uh, motorcycle-driving, leather-jacket-wearing, chain-smoking individual. He's still sensitive, and there's something that hurt him at some point. I do like the dynamic between Jake and Eddie, particularly the Jake playing hard to get, because it's not something we're accustomed to kind of seeing, I don't think. Particularly in the gay community, a, a gay man being so hesitant to to pursue anything or to go there sexually or affectionately with another hot gay man. It's just, we don't usually see that. So to, to see this character play it like that, it's, it's very refreshing. But then there is this moment where Jake asks where his bedroom is and they start roughhousing down the hallway. Like Jake is slamming Eddie against the wall and getting really close to kiss him. And as they get into the bedroom, I do like this moment because Eddie makes him turn around so he can tidy up a bit. And, Jake's like, whatever. So as he turned around, he does find Toby's driver's license on the floor with a drip of blood on it. But before he has much time to react, Eddie calls him and says, hey, Jake. And he turns around. Eddie takes his shirt off. They get into bed and they make out a bit before 
Jake takes Eddie's handcuffs and handcuffs him to the bed. And, and Eddie is nervous, rightfully so. He's like, um, I don't really know you. And Jake's like, yeah, I know. And he's like, so how do I know I can trust you? And Jake's like, I don't know. You can't. So he handcuffs him to the bed and then they, they kiss. And Eddie tells him that there's condoms in the bathroom. Maybe he should go get a couple. And Eddie and Jake's response is, you want to fuck me? Okay, I'll go get him. So he goes into the bathroom and looks for the condoms. And we do see all of a sudden the silhouette of the killer's in the mirror watching Jake and we're like, Oh shit. Okay. So Jake is consistently so fucking hot. I've touched on it a few times, but the moment when he says you want to fuck me like this whole time, he's been this, like just such like a dominant personality. And the fact that out of his lips comes, you want to fuck me. I'm like, Oh Jesus Christ. Like throw cold water on me, man. Like, uh, Again, going against expectation with this character, you know, and I I love that from him. Um, I also really think there's something to be appreciated about this whole finale sequence here. Once they get back to the house, there's this really heavy sexuality coming out of these two characters. They're they're finally getting what they want out of each other and they're giving into it. But there is still this growing sense of ominous dread and it's subtle. And it's as simple as, like you mentioned, when he finds the ID with the blood on it, you hear barking outside. Like, you know that the killer is present way before they do. So by the time you do get to this bathroom sequence where it is revealed the silhouette in the reflection, I'm sorry, there's no way that you would have ever gotten me to be left alone in that room with those fucking handcuffs after what happened to me. There's no way. There's no way. Oh, but he's so hot. Like, whatever, man, whatever you got to do, just do it. Like, <laughs> well, I get, I mean, I think that's the thing that bothers me. I said, like I said, the most about the film is I don't find this, I don't find their whole behavior in this, these final moments to be realistic. If somebody attacked me and hit me in the eye with a sickle, I would be a fucking basket case. I'm not going to go back home and certainly not going to let somebody handcuff me to the bed and just act like nothing happened. Like they are totally nonchalant about the fact that they were attacked and that their friends are still missing. And they were told someone was killed inside of the bar and they don't seem to be too worried about who that could be. But I mean, it leads to this, this climax that is pretty damn amazing because once Jake gets the, uh, Gets the condoms. He goes back out of the hallway to get the key. He takes the key out of the front door because it's hanging there. And we get this moment where we hear a bunch of noises. So Jake is going to investigate him. And Eddie is just laying on the bed, handcuffed, useless. He's like, Jake, are you coming? As Jake steps into another room to look, the killer comes out out of nowhere and fucking sickles him through the chest, like the shoulder. And you can see the the sickle coming out the, the his back. Then the killer's like lifting him up and you can see it sliced him open. It's very disgusting. It's a really, really brutal attack moment. And which makes me question how he survives. But yeah, I mean, the way it's right through, obviously, I think like the, the shoulder blade. So he lifts it from there. But still, like this guy takes a fucking licking and he does keep on keep on kicking here in a moment. You know, one thing I, I want to say, too, and we haven't even really acknowledged, like, you know, they're back at this apartment. After the splendor of everything we've seen leading up to this point, the bars, the nightlife, the crowds, coming back to this location in a way could feel kind of um, lackluster uh, because it's very simple. But like right when they walk up, they show you this great foreboding shot of of the um, like the scaffolding or of like the, of the escape. I'm sorry, the escape, uh, the escape ladder. 
that comes down the side of the building. Um, and, and you know that's going to be involved in some way, shape, or form, which does uh, imply something fun to come, which you do get. You do get that at the end of the movie. But, you know, it is this this kind of vanilla-looking location that you find is a shared apartment between all the boys. I like that. That feels really natural to me. Those young gays living together in West Hollywood. Like, I like that this is their home space that they all shared together. It means they're even closer, you know? Well, it's, yeah. Well, it's Chaz and, and, and uh, Eddie that are that are the roommates but i find it very like intimate i do like it it's just it's a very intimate space that fits the the climax the climax pretty it's pretty rushed honestly but it works for me uh because once the killer attacks jake and leaves him on the floor thinking he's bleeding out he goes into the um bedroom where like i said eddie is there helpless he's handcuffed and the killer is just going right right towards him getting ready to sickle him when jake comes into the room and hits him with a board and knocks him to the ground and eddie is able to pull himself out of the handcuffs in a very painful looking way he's running and he's able to get back into the living room to call the police the the killer we see that the killer gets up because he stands up and Jake is just sitting against the wall watching him stand up. Eddie goes into the kitchen kind of looking for weapons or whatever. And he opens the pantry door and all of the heads, the heads of Chaz, Joey and Toby fall all of the pantry onto the floor. And he like falls and they're like rolling all over the floor. And I'm like, Oh, one thing I think we really need to touch on for a sec, uh, Troy as, as gay horror fans and what, you know, what, gays expect from horror you know there's a few things we really want we want good fucking characters we want to see representation we like our gore but if there's one thing we demand it's a good fucking chase sequence and you know if you're like me i like my chase sequences long and elaborate and drawn out and our climax is to be big and explosive and filled with murder and violence and you know, we had a great little chase scene earlier. We didn't really talk too much about it, but it, it really serves a good purpose. You do get a nice little pursuit moment there with the lead character. Yeah, there's there. It's it's. I would say it's a mini chase scene. It's a I mini mean, chase. This this does not last very long at all. No, well, I mean because once he fall, once the heads fall on him and they're rolling around the floor, the killer comes in and fucking attacks him, and he's able to run back into his room and and shut the door. But of course, the killer is hacking his way in with a sickle. He is able to put Jake out on the fire escape and is fumbling for his gun. He gets his gun out of the closet, gets his bullets, um, goes out onto the fire escape. And the whole final moments of the film take place on this fire escape. And it's just brisk. The killer attacks him. Uh, Eddie fires the gun, but drops it. And the killer it falls down to the next level. The killer grabs him. And it's like, there's this moment where he pulls Eddie towards him and literally sucks his eyeball out he tongues his eyeball and takes eddie's eyeball out with his tongue it is so disgusting yeah and and it it, it is quick it moves fast but it's it's brutal it's suspenseful he's bashing through the door at one point with the scythe like he's literally destroying this door and and they really have no choice but to just fight back and jake is definitely badly injured like it's not like they make it like he can really fight for himself he falls over at one point you know he's yeah jake's fucked up like he is on the verge of death like if this would have take if this wouldn't have happened as quickly as it did and the ambulance didn't get there he would be dead literally um but i i mean the, the movie itself is only 118 minutes long it's not a long film by any means so i mean i, I appreciate the pacing of this film is something i else i want to mention real quick 
this the pacing in this film is exceptional. I never get bored. Everything is paced out so perfectly that you don't really have a chance to get bored. The kills are spaced out really well. This climax, the minute it comes, happens really quickly, but it's it's just enough. Like it feels satisfying. There's this moment where Eddie like actually falls over the ledge and he's just hanging there and he has no choice but to reach down and get the gun. The killer has gone back up and grabs Jake and is getting ready to decapitate him. There's a see, there's a shot of him slamming the sickle into the wall, uh, the side of the the apartment, and it's like he's pulling Jake's head towards it, like he's gonna like cut his head off that way by pulling him into the sickle. And Eddie aims the gun, and we've already know that Eddie is a fucking lousy shot because of the um, the arcade game they played where he didn't he didn't hit the target at all. All Jake is doing is saying, shoot me, shoot me, because he knows that if Eddie aims it at him, he's actually his his vision is so fucked up that he's going to actually probably hit the killer. And lo and behold, he does. He shoots, hits the killer in the head. The killer falls back, lets Jake go. Eddie runs up to Jake. They they kiss a beautiful moment like they're happy. They kiss and the ambulance comes. Jake is taken to the hospital. The paramedics are rolling the killer by on the cart, and you know the is that this is Eddie's sister, right? She's like, oh, this ugly mother, a motherfucker or something. Is that is that his sister? I think. Yeah, that's his sister. Yeah, and Eddie's like, what? He's still alive? And the one paramedic's like, oh, don't worry, he's he he's as useless as a carrot. And as they're wheeling him into the back of the uh, paramedic, he Eddie looks down, and the killer op- opens his eyes, opens his mouth. And has Eddie's glass eye still in his mouth. And it cuts to the end of the film. You know, I I mentioned the glass eye earlier. And I do kind of want to come back to that. And and I want to actually approach it with like a a strange, like, feeling of adoration, I guess. Like the the addition of this whole glass eye storyline. Because it really is so awkward in some ways. But one thing I appreciate now upon seeing this whole climax and the character of Eddie, who is for the most part, pretty um, reserved. And I wouldn't say like it, he, that he lacks confidence, but he's just not a sexualized individual as compared to his friends. And he wants to go about this whole pursuit with Jake so delicately and with such an element of respect, which a lot of us gays are not used to. I think a lot of it stems from the fact that he has, even though he's a beautiful, beautiful man, he does have this strange flaw, this glass eye, this weird quirk, that I think, you know, looking back on this now and watching this film, I think it's part of the reason he's developed to be the way he is. You know, I think he does have a level of insecurity about it. Uh, He's embarrassed of it. There's that moment earlier in the movie where Jake catches him adjusting his eye and, and Jake, you know, it's nice to see does not respond shitty. You know, some guys could prod about the topic or make it awkward. And I think the way Jake handles that aspect with him as well uh, is very sweet, even down to the moment when he's getting wheeled away and he uh, he sees Jake walk up with the eye patch. He's like, you look like a pirate. And he says it in like a loving, sweet way as he has like the fucking oxygen mask put on and he's wheeled away. I, I kind of I, I look at it with different goggles through a different one-eyed lens at this point, because I appreciate it as being a tool for to explain why Eddie's character is a little more humble, a little more grounded, has maybe seen a little more hardship, um, has experienced life a little bit harder, and has this strange flaw that not a lot of people can relate to. 
Um, and it does make him a little more down to earth. And I appreciate that about who he is. So it kind of makes sense for his character to have something like that. Uh, whereas the rest of his friends are so like worried about their physicality and you see Toby, you know, that goddamn billboard, like, let's take a moment and talk about that billboard. Get me a copy of that, Troy, to hang over my bed, that fucking hot fucking underwear billboard. Jesus Christ. Um, none of them have experienced exactly what he's gone through or have something to deal with along those lines. And while it may be a little extreme, a little over the top, I like that it's a through story that carries through the whole thing. Uh, down to the final shot where you see this, the killer smile to reveal that glass eye in his mouth. Like, that alone is a memorable moment in the film, the way it ends. Like, if you're going to end on a cool, strong note like that, like, okay. Like, at least they kept it consistent, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally think you're spot on. And it's one thing that makes that Eddie endearing. He has this insecurity about the glass eye. And that final shot of the killer with the glass eye in his mouth is just so uniquely appropriate because the killer is like taunting him. He's teasing him. Obviously he's like, Hey, look, I got something of yours. I might not have gotten your head, (laughs) but I got something of yours that he's, that is probably even more important to you because now you have to wear this eye patch. Now you're going to have to have this space in your eye. People are going to be able to visually look at you and notice you have something wrong with you because the eye patch, I got you, I got the, you know, the one thing that that makes you, that is going to make you the most vulnerable. And I really think that's quite hard hitting when you think about it the killer is definitely taunting him in that respect i like that troy honestly i think that's that's a unique way to look at it because the killer has only been collecting the heads of beautiful young men you know and you're like yeah while he didn't get the head he did still take something from him i i think that's an interesting way to look at it that whole ending though man that whole even building up to that final moment you're right it's fast it moves quick it almost feels rushed to a certain extent but looking back on it i also don't know if i would want it any other way like what more would i want out of that it is such a an excellent intense finale yeah no i don't think there's anything else i would need from the ending honestly and i mean the only thing that i want that this film set up that we never got was a sequel you know and hopefully maybe someday we'll get it or or someone will will come in and i don't know but this film was left wide open for a sequel i wanted to know what happened to eddie and jake i wanted to kind of know you know where they were going to take this killer because obviously he's not dead but i mean i think for a standalone slasher film this is this is one of you know the best that came out of the early 2000s and it definitely needs more attention particularly for what it did for gay horror cinema i think as well i i adore this film the more i watch it the more I actually adore adored. I, I I genuinely feel strongly for the characters. Uh, this is a film that you know. Yes, it's low budget. Yes, it has some flaws, but goddamn, the characters are so likable. I can relate to so many aspects of the film. I think it's briskly paced. I, I the horror fan in me, it gives me everything I want. But then there's also I can relate to so much of it and so many of the characters. I just really, really adore this film. Yeah, man, I I, I second that uh, excitement and that eagerness to express my love for this film. I, I really feel like I said at the beginning of this, I I feel like I don't give it enough credit for how much of an impact it's had on me. And to think about the idea of a sequel is 
is honestly, it's tantalizing because I think there's so many ways, again, now in 2023, so many ways you could approach a sequel to this and go so many different directions with it, do something really dark, do something really interesting and still feeling true to the queer community that it, that it revolves around and that is depicted within it. I mean, if anything now, you would just see that much more of that, that much more vibrant. I would love to see that. I mean, give me that. Give me a sequel. Give me a reimagining. I don't care what. As long as it brings more eyes to this film. That's what I want. I want to see this movie really remembered as not just a great queer film, but a great fucking slasher. What a good slasher. Which it is. You hear that, Paul Etheridge? Get, get, come on. We, we are all for this sequel. You would be supported, I think, by so many people doing a sequel to this film. But uh, I mean, that's Hellbent. I mean, I think we are, I think our first episode of Hellbent was 40 minutes. We're clocking in at, at, at way more than that. But, um, Guys, let us know what you think about this film. Again, I, I I strongly feel like this film works mainly because of the characters, the characters not being stereotypes. And you can maybe argue that they are, but I, I don't think so to the extent that we've seen in other gay films portraying characters. Check it out. It's it's uh I, I I like I said, I watched it four times just for this recording and none of, I was not bored any of the times I watched it. So what are your thoughts on Hellbent? Let us know. And um, yeah. And what's our next episode real quick? I mean, it's all come down to this guys. Uh, Troy once told me that the, one of the scenes in horror that makes him the most uncomfortable and uh, that he would never want to ever watch again is the Heather Matarazzo sequence and Hostel 2. Then it was announced that Heather Matarazzo will be attending the Houston Horror Film Festival. So I've been thinking Heather Matarazzo. I've been thinking about her. Her and Tara Reid now. <laughs> Which, I mean, what a treat. Uh, what a fucking treat, these two gals. But yeah. Um, so I was like, you know what? Hostile 2, it's time. I want to see Troy's skin crawl. I want the listeners to be able to hear the uh, discomfort in his voice as he describes the scene. So we're going to talk about it and more. Mm, yeah. All I can say is stay tuned because that is one scene I've said I would never watch again. Well, now and you're going you, to. <laughs> I know. And when you picked it, I'm like, God. Fuck. <laughs> I will watch it once. I, I may, I'll watch the movie more than once because I always do for our reviews, but I will watch that scene one time. That's it. I'll forward through the rest because I find it extremely tough and it's all because of her performance. Oh God, her little boobies hanging upside down. I have a heart. I don't. I mean, I, I'm, I, I have a heart. I'm a huge horror fan, but I also have a heart. And when people, I don't want to see somebody like tortured and, you know, she sells the shit out of the fact that she's being tortured. And I don't, I don't really want to see that. That doesn't, that doesn't like do anything for me. Like in terms of like, Oh, I'm getting entertainment from this. Like, I will tell you the first time I watched that scene, I was disgusted. I was disgusted. And I'm like, I will never watch this again, but now you're making me. And for the sake of dark night, the podcast, I will, I will, but I'm just going to say, I'm not taking pleasure in yeah. that at all. Um, but I'll watch it again. And when I meet Heather Rossarazzo, I'm going to have to tell her how impactful, her death scene in that film was because it's one of the worst death scenes I've seen in a film in terms of how it made me feel. But um, so stay tuned guys. Cause I'm sure I'm going to have a lot to say mate being having to watch it again after what, how long ago did that come out? 10 years, 12 years. I don't yeah. know. The last time I saw it was when the film was came out. So it's been a long time. So maybe I'll think differently. Maybe 
because I've seen so much stuff since then that, that could be considered worse, like Terrifier, Serbian film, all that shit. Maybe it's not going to affect me. So guys, you're going to have to stay tuned and find out. Does Troy still really fucking hate that scene in Hostel 2? That's what we're going to talk about next week. Until then, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and check out our Patreon. If that doesn't have you guys fucking excited, I don't know what more to give you. I don't know, man. But yeah, I mean, when we're out hanging out with Tara Reed and Heather Matarazzo, we're going to have to bring this up. <laughs> and we'll be talking more about that soon. That's some exciting news coming. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But guys, thank you for tuning in. We uh, Go back and listen to our first episode on Felben and then listen to this one and see what one we did better. <laughs> Give us a side-by-side comparison. Right, I want to know. Oh, my uh, God. All right, guys. Good night. We love you. Good night. <laughs>